Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. Now, this episode is pretty cool for me being a lifelong CAT supporter because today we are joined by former AFL footballer, um, premiership winning uh, captain for the Geelong Cats, and also now commentator for the AFL footy on both the TV and the radio, Cameron Ling. Cam, thank you so much for joining us today with the Code 9 Foundation. Absolute pleasure, Erin. Thank you for having me on. I didn't know you were a cat supporter, so this is going to make it an even better chat. I thought I'd just slip that one in there. Look, you know, massive, <laughs> massive cat supporter. I don't think you can, well, you can grow up in Geelong and not be a cat supporter, but I don't think we can grow up in my family particularly and not be a cat supporter. But listen, 246 games over 12 seasons for the club that you barracked for as a kid, three premierships, best and fairest in 2004, All-Australian in 2007, much loved by players and fans alike. Is it safe to say that the Geelong Footy Club pretty much became a second home to you while you were there? Absolutely, that is safe to say. And that was a very nice little uh, intro there. um, I've currently got a a lot bigger head than I had about 30 seconds ago. (laughs) uh, um, It's nice to hear the career spoken about like that. It was hard at times, but... A lot of fun, and, and you're right, it, it was certainly a home to me, and I was one of the very, very lucky people who grew up five minutes from the footy ground, barracked for the Cats, loved the Cats, loved, just adored the Cats, and would go to most games, certainly every home game with Dad. Um, we'd go to some Melbourne games. We went to the, all those Unfortunate grand finals, 89, 92, 94, 95, and watch the losing ones, but I love the Cats. So to get drafted by the club that I adored in the hometown that I grew up in and loved, um, it was pretty special. And my dream, and, and a dream that uh, I honestly I don't think was, didn't think was a possibility until maybe I was 16, 17 and realising, oh, hang on a second, might be a chance of getting drafted. But my dream was just to play one game of footy for the Cats. Um, as a supporter, growing up, my dream was just to watch a Cats premiership. I didn't think I'd play in it. Yeah. Um, so to then have a career with the team that I loved and then not just do that but be able to play in those premierships that bring so much joy to so many Cats supporters out there, um, sometimes I still do pinch myself and um, realise just how lucky I was. And It took a lot of hard work but also very fortunate to be part of a great club and surrounded by some incredible people incredible leaders and um, just great friends I made over those years. So it was a pretty special time and I'm very thankful for everything I got to experience. Yeah. Look, I think it's pretty safe to say for anyone who's who's listening who's familiar with Geelong will understand, and I'm sure, Cameron, you understand this very well when I say that Geelong's certainly a one-team town. And so when I was growing up in Geelong, um, you just if you were a Geelong supporter, and, and gosh, this was back in the day when you know you turned up to the games and there weren't any seats in parts of the games. You, you turned up and you you stood through the game, and um, you know rain, hail or shine, you turned up. And and I remember those those grand finals you were talking back in the nineties where we got flogged, and and geez, it was heartbreaking. But you still turned up and you still supported and you loved your team. But it was, it was this real one team town. And I must admit, I was talking to a neighbour over the fence. We were down, my parents are still down in Geelong and I was down there over the weekend and mentioned that I was doing a podcast with Cameron Ling and 
again, lifelong cat supporter. And she's like, oh, everyone has to, you know, share their stories. And she's like, you know what, Erin, I was, I was in the city one day and I think it was a, must have been before a game and she was standing there and, and you walked past her, Cameron, and she said, you know, I knew who he was, of course, straight away, but you don't sort of, you know, you, don't, you never sort of say anything to the players, but you actually stopped and said hello and smiled at her and, and had a chat and she said, and that just made me realise such a nice guy. He went out of his way to say hello to me. And, and he's just such a nice guy. And I must admit, everybody that I've ever, you know, spoken to about you, Cameron, is that that's the same, you know, response that I've always been given is that you're just such a nice guy. But surely that, you know, has to take a bit of a toll in that you are in the spotlight. You are in a one-team town. You do have a distinctive look with that lovely mop of red hair that you have. <laughs> how how did that go? You know, throughout your throughout your playing career, and we will go back to the beginning of that in in a second. But just in general, you know, that toll on you in being so well recognised throughout your career. You know, I'm sure it's had its highlights, but it must have its lowlights as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really nice to hear that story you just tell, though, because it. They're, you know, little interactions and, and sometimes um, as, when you're the, the player involved, you don't realise that you're having an impact on people. So it is nice to hear those. Um, yeah, it's, it's a strange one. It, I've always, and, and I've, I'm so appreciative of my upbringing and the incredible family and parents that I had and um, mum and dad's way that they taught us to care and, and love each other but also other people and, and show real empathy and care for other people but also a real um, dedication to hard work and resilience. Um, I mean, my dad had a horrific workplace injury when he was 19, lost lost his hand, lost his right hand in a workplace accident um, and, you know, taught himself to play golf still for, and still plays now, um, nearly 70 and, um, taught himself to bowl left-handed in cricket and played cricket for 25 years, bowling left-handed. Wow. Um, just that incredible resilience that he passed on to us. Mum was a palliative care nurse for 30 years and um, I still don't know how she did the yeah. job that she did. I, I couldn't imagine doing that. She's so strong and yet so positive and caring and warm. Um, so I, really a lot of that was passed on to me that once I was a player, you you know, you, you do, whether you like it or not, you do have a responsibility to um, uh, to at least think that the, the positive impact you can have on people and, and that story you just tell, it, it, I just don't think it hurts me that much or takes that much out of my day or that much energy or whatever you want to call it to smile and say hello. If someone, you know, recognises you and likes footy and loves the cats, to just say day or, you know, be a decent person. Um, and that's what mum and dad would always impart on us was you know, just stop and think for a second that you, you these people want to have a chat and, and say day, and, you know, it might feel inconvenient at times, but... You know, is it really that big an issue just to say hi and, and smile? And, mm. um, so that was a big one. I, there are also times, I think, Aaron, where I also had to learn that. Where it, 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 There's a strange crossover time in a footy career if you're there long enough and you, and you have enough team success where you go from being just a young player that 
maybe a few hardcore Cats fans recognise to, um, you know, we're regularly playing in big games and having really good success and um, you, you become one of the senior players where a lot of people recognise you and you start getting people, you know, turning and looking and for, for a little period of time it, it's a little disconcerting when you can see people kind of whispering and saying, oh, you know, there's... There's Lino, you know, there, and, and it becomes this feeling of everybody watching you and looking at you. And for a brief period, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't like this. Um, but once you learn that, well, they're just interested in footy, and they've they've recognised you, and it's not hurting you. It's not, you know, it's nothing sinister. It's nothing like that. It, you sort of learn to relax with it again, and then you realise, you know, if they are Cats fans and footy fans, and they like you, and they're like, oh, g'day, Lingy. Well, again, it comes back to the point, it doesn't hurt to just go, oh, g'day, mates, how you going? You know, good win on the weekend, whatever it might be. Um, things like that. But there, there is a little transition period where it goes from, um, you know, you need to go through it being strange uh, and you're feeling like everybody's watching what you're doing when you're out in public. And um, So that, once you get through that transition, that's fine. And I think and mum, mum may have... Uh, had a stern word to me many, many times over the years and I've never forgotten it and I, I believe it as well. If any kid ever comes up and says g'day, wants a photo, wants an autograph, wants any, even if it's the most inconvenient time, you're in a rush, whatever it is, if it's a kid, uh, I, I'm, I'm a believer that you stop, you smile, you say g'day, you take the time, you take the photo, you give the autograph, whatever it might be, because I knew how special that was when I was a kid yeah. and my favourite player yeah. shared that moment with me. I, I think that's one that I don't care how how much you might be hating something or busy you are, whatever it is, I think just as a footballer, you know, bad luck. Just stop and smile for that yeah. kid because it's a precious moment for that for that little footy fan. So Good advice, Mum. Good advice, yeah, Mum. The, yeah, they're little things. I, I had to learn along the way but... Um, I'm a big believer in those. What did, did the footy club help you guys out with that? So as you mentioned just previously, so that was that transition. So when you started, and I'm guessing like when you first start out and those first few times you recognise, it's probably a bit of an ego boost. You're like, yeah, cool, like people are starting to recognise me. But then it can, I'm sure, become a little bit overwhelming. And I'm sure for the players of today where there's so much more pressure on being role models and you can't put a foot wrong without it being on social media and, you know, I'm sure there's many guys from your era who are, you know, were glad that social media wasn't around and Facebook wasn't around because, you know, you just can't put a foot wrong these days. There's so much more pressure out there. But back in your era, when you think back, was there help from the club to help you guys with that pressure, to adjust to that pressure? Um, there was always support. I don't think there was, you know, if you're talking about, um, oh, were there, you know, <laughs> teachings or workshops or anything like that about ways to cope with it? No, there wasn't that, but there was certainly support. We always had a really great player welfare department. Um, you know, you could talk to people about different experiences, but it's also something you had to learn along the way yourself. Yeah. Different people handle it differently. I mean, Look at Joel Selwood as a great example. He's just been unbelievable from day one. Uh, you know, he, he does it so well. Others might take seven or eight years, um, ten years, before they understand um, all of it and, and learn to relax with it. But, so, no, not not really. I, 
I just think it again it comes back to the point around um, sort of your values and your own character as a person. What you know, what do you believe in? And there's times I've handled it wrong. Um, I'd love to sit here and say oh, I've been perfect and I'm I'm so pleasant and beautiful with all every person I ever run into. <laughs> there's there's times where I've yeah I've I've been in a I'm thinking about a game or you're under pressure or you're just tired or you probably haven't eaten I was a bit grumpy or something like that and you're a bit probably rude or snappy or whatever you want to call it with people and well, maybe five minutes later you you go oh why didn't I just take the extra thirty seconds and and say good day and have a chat and you know yeah so no one no one handles it perfectly yeah. it's always. Yeah. In retrospect, what do they say? What do they say? Um, uh, yeah, when you look back in retrospect, it's always twenty twenty vision when you can look back. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it was just a couple of times I was. Uh, what do they call it? Hangry. Hangry. Hungry. Hungry. I'm always hangry lately. Yeah. <laughs> now listen, Lingy, as someone who was very fortunate enough to beat the two thousand and seven grand final, where if anyone needs a reminder, the cats belted Port Adelaide. Um, I remember how pumped the entire city of Geelong was when the Cats won and I seriously think it was something that lifted the entire city and I certainly recall um, you being touted as the Mayor of Geelong in a very humorous reference to the way that you were certainly idolised by so many people in Geelong and, you know, the Cats were riding high, the whole city was riding high, premierships in 07, 09, 2011. So I'm looking more at a personal focus here. How did you go around that time? You know, the cats are riding high, you know, top of your career as well. In terms of your mental health, how do you as an elite athlete at the top of your career, were you doing anything at that time to actually really maintain your mental health and well-being? Because I'm sure that the clubs are really looking after your physical health and fitness. But at what point do you start thinking, hey, I better, I, I need to maintain my, my mental health and well-being here as well? Yeah, Erin, it's, it's a good question because I, I probably didn't have an awareness that I was doing it at the time. But now I look back, I, I was absolutely very good at looking after my mental well-being because I had things outside of football my entire self-worth and my um, entire feeling of good or bad or in between wasn't tied 100% to footy and, and my performance that week. I, I had um, recreational hobbies. I, I loved surfing and I'd surf with mates who weren't footballers and couple, one or two who were. Um, so I had that other pursuit of relaxation and physical activity out there, but I also had other um, some business interests that I was – um, learning and, and um, you know, sinking my teeth into. So it gave me other things to focus on, which I know can cause its own worries and stresses, but it was actually uh, quite freeing to have that those other focuses and not having it all tied to footy. Um, and the other big one was <laughs> my friends and family might get a laugh at this because they know how good I was at it. But I always maintained an extremely um, good sleep pattern. Um, I could I could sleep better than most people, and I, I don't think at the time I had a total awareness around how important that was mm. for my. I probably got it from my physical recovery, and 
um, physical well-being, but how important that was for my mental well-being that, you know, I would sleep a lot and get really good quality sleep and, you know, early to bed and not not have um, broken sleep and really late nights continuously. And, um, so those things combined, the different interests, the different focuses, the, the other physical enjoyable outlets like surfing and the other things I did would go camping with mates and then a really great, um, really great sleep habits, I, I think without even fully aware, being aware of it at the time meant that I, I was in a really good place mentally while we were having great success as well. But with great success in footy comes even more pressure. You know, yeah. you're playing in bigger games and more expectations and, you know, more things on the line. Um, those things were combining really well during that period. Yeah, and I think some of those things you've touched on there are so relevant for all of our members that will be listening and, and people who would be listening in general as well is that it's so important for us. I mean, we can get so focused and caught up in our, whether it, you know, it's our career and, you know, whether it's the first responders who are listening and we can get so caught up in our identity that it's tied to whether it's our police uniform or our paramedic uniform or, or firefighter uniform and then um, at the end of that career, what do we do when that, that uniform is is taken away, and as you've just rightly said, if we've if we've had things outside of that career right throughout, um, you know, making sure we've had other interests, friends, friendships, and and support networks outside of that, and we've had some webinars recently with a psychologist who really um, really recommended that as well to make sure that we have friends outside of our immediate career group as well. So I think. For you, just mentioning, you know, that it's good for even though you were, you know, were so, you know, immersed in the footy, footy career that you had mates still outside of the footy area and interests outside of footy. And I think so for everyone that's listening within the emergency services and the first response group, it's so important to still have um, something outside of that as well because when you do come into retirement, that makes that transition a little bit easier, I guess, as well, is if you have yeah. all of that you know, something outside of that already. That was, and I, and I lived with, uh, once I moved out of home from mum and dad, I, I lived with um, a, a mate of mine who was a builder and played local footy but we'd surfed together and had really close mates with him as well who more often than not would come around and visit and spend time together. Uh, I think that was crucial. Now, and again, at the time, I didn't plan it that way and think, oh, now the best thing for my footy career is going to be living with this guy. Uh, it was uh, looking back to seeing just I'd get home and your head would be so full of thoughts around how I'd trained that day, how we'd played that week before, how I needed to prepare for the next day. But then you'd get home and start talking about something funny that happened on his work site or um, we'd work out when we're going to go for a surf in the morning or we'd, um, you know, one of the other mates pop around and, and a funny story will have happened. And just for that bit of time, your mind's off. Um, whether you're uh, almost, yeah, whether you're too absorbed in whatever it might you might be doing at work and, mm. and at footy, and um, there's certainly times where I had to teach myself to switch off as well. Where you know I'd have triggers of driving out of the footy club at the end of a training session, knowing the time that I had to be back the next day, but then almost having this um, trigger point of a certain the, the gate that I drove out would be, okay, once I drive past that, I'm not going to think about footy until I drive back in that same gate 
the next day um, and then I'll attack whatever I have to do the next day and, you know, train really well and um, get involved in whatever we need to improve. But just from that moment to that moment, the gate to gate, I'm going to totally lock off footy. So little things I had to teach myself along yeah. the way to help that. But, and that was always important to me. Yeah, well, that's really important. I wish I could learn to do that. And that's a problem. I work from home, so I don't have a gate to gate. I've got like, um, yeah, maybe I could put like a sign on my fridge. I need to go into social isolation from my fridge at the moment, so I'm struggling <laughs> <laughs> doing the whole, the whole distancing thing. Oh, it's, it's such a good friend, though. You don't want to you don't isolate too much. I know, I know. Um, so, look, you, you know, we certainly had some amazing times um, with the Geelong Footy Club through, as I said, 07, 09, 2011. You decided um, after an amazing last kick in the grand final against Collingwood in um, 2011 that that was um, time to go out on a high. Um, and why would you not? If you were thinking about it, what a, what a way to go out. You retired in October 2011 widely regarded as one of the best ever taggers to play AFL. Um, But you know what? Retirement isn't easy for anybody to face no matter what career they're in, whether it's an elite sports person or, as I said, for our listeners as as first responders. After all, you know, it's a closing of a chapter in our life. And I remember um, reading um, about Andy Murray when he was talking about, you know, the tennis player Andy Murray talking about going or when he was considering retirement and how he had started pre-planning for his retirement. And obviously some of us get the option to do that, others with our, you know, mental health and sometimes, you know, the PTSD and the mental health challenges that come on so suddenly we don't get that option to start pre-planning. But it was really interesting to hear Andy Murray talk so openly about how he had started planning for his retirement and that one of these um, parts of his pre-retirement plan was actually, you know, talking to a psychologist. And it really got me thinking about, you know, down the track when I need to start thinking about when I transition between careers and having that whole um, discussion around how I'm going to go about that and, yeah, changing between chapters. And I really liked that way of looking at it, changing between chapters because it is this big you know, you know, thing a big part of our identity um, changing, and I'm wondering how you went about that, Cameron. Because yeah, obviously, retiring from AFL, it's a huge thing. It's going to be all over the media, and it was for you, obviously. Um, how did you go about that? And obviously, I'm assuming you had the discussions with your family and mates long before you announced publicly. And then, um, you know, how it actually felt in the weeks and months afterwards once you'd made that decision and, and it sat with you for a while, you know, how it impacted you to actually be retired from what you were doing? It was, uh, I, I suppose I was in a reasonably fortunate position mentally and I was quite excited about retirement from footy and, and that's not always the case with footballers. Uh, you got some who want to play footy until you have to basically be dragged kicking and screaming out of the place. Um, I loved footy, but I also I pushed myself so far physically and my body was an absolute wreck. And the, the mental exhaustion that it took to make sure I was up and ready to train every single time and, and to play at the highest level every single time it's quite quite exhausting, and I so therefore I was once I'd made up my mind that I wanted to retire, I was quite excited and looking forward to retiring. So that I suppose 
got me off on the right foot. And for the first few months, uh, it was it was liberating. It was really nice. Um, the I'd, I'd always been that person who uh, had to. We'd do a preseason run. I had to beat everybody else. I had to smash them, <laughs> and I had to. I had to smash myself. I, if I, you know, if I wasn't stumbling over the line, nearly half passing out, throwing up, whatever you want to say, um, I'd be disappointed in myself. I, I could have pushed myself harder. So everything was always, you know, push hard. Like I could, I could go to another. I could find something, and I kind of was happy not to have to do that anymore. And I. I'd go for a jog and I'd, I'd keep myself sort of fit, but I'd get out in the jog and where I'd normally put the foot down and really go for home, you know, to, to the point where I could, you know, almost burst. I was like, no, nah, just cruise home. That's fine. And that was nice. Uh, it, was, it was really good. So for, for probably the first 12 months, all was good. It was, it was fantastic. Um, my body felt better. I was that excitement was warranted and I was free of all of the exhausting things. But it's strange, probably two years, I reckon, after I'd, um, after I'd finished. And it coincided with, I don't want to bore you too much here, Erin, about, um, but my back was really bad. Right. Um, and that's sort of what caused me to, I just couldn't do it physically anymore. When I retired and for the first 12 months, I'm not getting banged around and bashed around and all the knocks and all of that, my back actually started feeling really good and my body felt good and, you know, I was, I was happy and I was, I was great. I, um, stupidly, but unbeknownst to me, I'd also stopped doing all the little sort of core strength Pilates type exercise that I've done every day for 12 years um, and all that strength around my back was gone so from probably year two to year four, my back went downhill massively and I've got a couple of bulging discs, but all the strength was gone. So I had extreme pain in my back and I could no longer really do much physically. I couldn't go for a run. That would I couldn't walk for three days if I tried to go for a run. So that pain sort of kicked in. At the same time as, you know, I'm 32, 33 by this stage going, okay, well, what do I do now? Mm. Um, and it was, it's funny, your question around it, you said with the, the people that you talk to and, and see that tied to the uniform, well, mine was tied to being a footballer, yeah. my whole identity. And my dream, my, my just craziest, wildest, never going to happen in a million years dream was to play in a Cats premiership. Um, my, my dream was never to become CEO of Goldman Sachs or to become uh, the Prime Minister of Australia or anything like that. It was to be to, to win a premiership for the Cats or to play a game for the Cats. Yeah. So at 33, I'm now a couple of years retired. And you've done it three times. You've not only done it once, you've done it three times. Yeah, and I've achieved my lifelong dream yeah. and go, okay, well, what do I, what do, I, what do, I do, next? do now? Yeah. Um, and, and that was a strange, empty feeling. So as much as I was one who was looking forward to retirement and probably I reckon handle, hand, have handled retirement better than, you know, 80% of footballers who've retired, I still had those moments of, oh, well, I've achieved everything I've ever wanted to achieve. What do I, what do, I do now? Mm. And I suppose fortunately... 
I had this other thing come into my life which excited me so much and made me so motivated to be the best I could be at it, whatever that might be, whatever that looks like, and that was being a dad. And um, we had, had our first baby maybe 18 months after I'd retired. Um, so all that new, fun, crazy, sleep-deprived, that incredible um, blur of being a dad for the first time, I loved. And I wanted to change all the nappies and I wanted <laughs> to be a part of every moment. And um, So that kind of was this thing that I could focus my attention on um, which was wonderful, got me through sort of the questions of what do I do now. But then you also get to a point in that where, okay, it's got to be all about my kids and, and my wife, but also I've got to make sure I think of myself as well. Yeah. Um, and that's when I, I reckon it took till probably four to five years after I retired before I started looking after myself again physically and, you know, going, oh, well, I, I can't be, I'm 30, say I'm 35 now um, when I was thinking this and what, I can't walk, I can't put my own shoes on because I've got a sore back and I keep saying I need to do something about it but I don't because, you know, what do I do, I can't be bothered, all this sort of stuff. So I, um, I thought, no, I'm going I'm to get, get the back strong again, um, I'm going to, you know, get some treatment, get the muscles moving again. I'm going to start being able to exercise again. I'm going to start feeling good physically. I'm going to have little goals um, because I know that's going to make me better at ultimately what I want to be, which is a great dad to my three boys um, and, a, and a really hopefully a really good person. So I started looking after myself a bit more, I reckon. But this is four or five years after retiring, so it was, it was a long, weird process of um, kind of discovering what I wanted to do also, the fact that it's okay to say I've got to look after myself a little bit too now um, and got myself physically better and it was a really slow, gradual process. Um, just bit by bit, I started feeling so much better about myself physically and mentally as I had these little goals and challenges and I included my boys as they were getting older and Nicole was really supportive and we'd support each other and what we wanted to do. It just it sort of grew and it's... It, you know, it took probably another two more years of getting really excited about it all and feeling really great. And um, it culminated in Nicole and I doing a trip to New York, which I'd never been, and we did leave the kids at grandparents. So big thanks to them. <laughs> um, and I, I ended up doing the New York Marathon. Wow. Um, well, that's is, a pretty pretty spectacular achievement. Yeah. Well, I mean, three years before that, I honestly, and I'm not exaggerating here, I. You know, Nicole would sometimes have to put my socks on me in the morning because I couldn't bend down and because um, it was too painful with my back. So it was it was a gradual process, but a really rewarding process to go. Okay, it's it is it's got to be about other people and and my wife and my kids are my biggest priority. Um, my mum and my dad, all these wonderful people and the people I get to work with. But it's also okay. <laughs> to want to focus on myself for a little yeah. bit and, and get myself really um, in a good place physically and a good place mentally. And I think once I got that there, I was even better equipped to be better at um, all the stuff I wanted to do with my family and my friends and my workmates and that. So it kind of all went hand in hand a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it was a probably, well, now I'm, 
nearly 10 years retired, um, it, was, it's, it was certainly a process. Uh, it hasn't been 10 years, Cameron, surely, because that just makes me feel old. So it feels like <laughs> yesterday I was sitting in the grandstands cheering on the premiership as well. Time flies by. Um, look, I'm, I'm aware we're getting towards the end of the podcast, but seriously, I could talk to you for hours because there's just so many questions that I would love to, to ask. But um, I'm really... I've probably gone on, on and on too much. No, 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 not at that. all. Not at all. <laughs> but um, like I'm really, you know, aware of, as you've just touched on this whole idea of, you know, when, when you retire and, I mean, obviously the clubs don't have a responsibility to make sure, it's not up to the clubs to make sure that people are looking after their own health and well-being once they retire, but it's certainly something that we've been hearing more and more from from our first responders in that once they do retire and whether that's because of their physical or mental health or um, whether they can, yeah, can no longer do their job as much as they would like to, whether there is some kind of responsibility from the services to sort of make sure that they are okay in terms of, yeah, following up in terms of their well-being and that they still have access to support. And, I'm um, you know, there's research out there to certainly suggest that not only for elite athletes but certainly um, for people who've been operating in those high-level, high-stress environments like first responders, that we are certainly more vulnerable to poor mental health after we retire. And certainly if we have to retire in younger ages, so I'm talking in our 20s, 30s and 40s, if we're, if we're pushed into retirement, what do we do? Like hopefully we've still got half of our life ahead of us. Do you know what I mean? And many of us, like you said, all you ever wanted to do was to play for the Cats and to get that premiership and you'd achieve that. So, yeah, where do you go from there? And a lot of our responders and members, like all they ever wanted to do was to be a cop or to be a paramedic or to be a firefighter. And now all of a sudden they can't do that anymore and they might be 30 or 40 years old. What do they do now? It's all tied up in their, you know, now they feel like part of their identity is gone. So maybe one last question to throw at you and, you know, what can we be doing, you know, you can think of it from the, the point of view of, of the AFL clubs, but just, you know, maybe even just employers in general when, you know, we've got these elite people at the top of their game, whether it's from the sports um, perspective or from the emergency services perspective, even the military as well, you know, people who are exiting out of their careers that they've trained so hard for and been in top physical condition for so long, but then they leave and they're still, you know, got a lot of life left ahead of them. You know, what can we be doing to protect them and to look after them when they come out of that? Like what would have helped you? As you said, it took you quite a few years after you retired to sort of find your way um, and to get back into looking after you. Is there anything that the club could have done to maybe help you in those first few years that they didn't do? Um, I, I must say that... The Geelong Footy Club are, are very good at this, um, and, and I don't have a simple one-size-fits-all answer yeah. to that question, but I, I think whatever it is, whatever actual, whatever shape it takes, at the heart of it is the feeling that that organisation that you gave everything to and your total commitment to be the best you could be, and for me it was to be the best player I could be and, and leader and person for the Geelong Footy Club was at the heart of it. I wanted and always felt like they did, they cared. Mm. Um, and that that can come in different forms. I, I know that and it sounds a little bit probably too simplified. But, you know, the regular, um, you know, even 
Dave Johnson, David Johnson, who was player welfare at the Geelong Footy Club, an outstanding club person, great at what he did. Just the, the emails semi-regularly or a, a phone call, you know, oh, hey, um, we're having having this lunch at the club. Why don't you come down and meet some of the uh, couple of the new draftees? Uh, oh, we've got a young bloke who's who's got your old number. Um, do you want to come down and meet him? Um, little things like that. That it's not much, but it's still just that feeling of okay, it was my home and my everything. This footy club. Now I have moved on, and I, you, I had to move. I've got to move on and go. It's their time to make it their place now. But still, this feeling that I'm welcome back there. Um, you know, the the subtle things like, well, and the club doctor at the Cats has always been amazing. You know, if if my kids are sick or I'm worried or, or something, you know, a little bite sort of thing shows up in their skin. I don't know if it's a mozzie bite or it's a spider bite. I can still just ring them in any hour and go, oh, I'm really worried. Um, one of the boys has been throwing up all night. Should I be doing anything? You know, should I take him to hospital? What, just, I know it's tiny things, and I know we're very, very fortunate to be able to do that. I, that's not always um, achievable to be able to ring the doctor like that. But oh, I just found those great people from the football club just have always continued on that feeling of they're there for us yeah. and they care. And um, the doc might write back and say, uh, all, all good, mate. It's just a little mozzie bite um, on Max's uh, Max's arm. Don't stress. Hope you're well. You know, look forward to catching up. And just that moment of panic of a new parent who doesn't know whether it's you know you got to rush them to hospital or just chill out. <laughs> They're completely yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, that feeling of care, all that caring, all, yeah. sort of all around the yeah, and always at the heart of even when I was. Um, my back was bad and physically sore, there was always this offer of, oh, you know, if you, if you need to come down and use the gym, if you want to do your strengthening exercises at the gym, um, you're welcome to. Now I'd prefer to do them on the lounge room floor. Um, but there was always the offer of, you know, if you need to come down and come down and use it. And it wasn't for any other purpose than they cared about me and they, they wanted me to be okay and so you still, felt, felt, you still felt part of that family, like you hadn't been forgotten just because you were gone. Like you were, you might have been retired, but you weren't forgotten. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's absolutely it's their time, the new players that are in there and the new coaches, and it's not me there, you know, every day um, trying to be back involved again. Um, and it, I'm sure it's the same with it, with anyone. You, you know, if your time's finished, whether. It, um, you wanted it to be, or unfortunately it, it was cut short, well, your time's finished there. But if you feel like it's still a place that you're welcome and there are people that you care about you, I think you're always going to feel better about it and yourself. And I, I found that with Geelong. They are, they are still, to this day, very, very good. I you know, get a text every now and then, oh, if you want to come bring the boys down, and as in my boys, and... Um, they can come watch training, even though it's a closed training session. Come down and have a look and say good day to um, a couple of the young players. And always that feeling of um, of care and welcomeness to the club. Well, I think you know our time's up, Cameron. It's been an incredible opportunity to hear hear from you. I think I've got one very, very, very important question to leave you with, and I think this is one for the, all the cat supporters will want to hear the answer to. Are we going to see your boys running around in the hoops one day? 
I, I, they're age seven, five, and three. Um, all I can say is they have certainly got the energy to uh, play any sport they like. They are the most active, bouncing off the walls <laughs> kids I've ever seen. And since having experienced them now as a father, I have on numerous occasions apologised to my mum and dad <laughs> for how crazy I must have been as a little kid. Um, and mum always laughs and says that I was just a little angel. So I'm sure she's looking at it through rose-coloured glasses these days. But um, they've definitely got the energy to do whatever they want. And uh, Max, my oldest, he loves footy. He's the seven-year-old. He loves watching footy. So maybe he might one day uh, take up kicking the footy around. Brilliant. No problems. Cameron Ling, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Aaron. All the best.